pursue uh, depth of relationship with Jesus. So um, today's title is The Supremacy of Christ. Have you ever second-guessed yourself in a situation, um, perhaps to do with a major project at work or a touchy conversation with friends, or maybe it was the choice of a family vacation destination? I don't recommend uh, camping in northern Montana in early May. Sometimes we jump into something a bit too quickly. Something causes us to do this, whether it's curiosity or time constraints, frustration, or, or even excitement. And then a little, down, a little while down the road, you start to crave a, a new adventure. You start asking the question, is this it? I, I thought it was gonna be more than this or, or better. You become frustrated or unsettled with what you've gotten yourself into. Well, for the Christians at Colossae, a city in the ancient world, um, they'd begun, begun to come up against this kind of unsettledness. They'd jumped in on this new movement that they'd been told about, the, the early budding Christian faith. But now some people were starting to question whether it was really enough. Their question today is one many of us find ourselves asking today. Can I be a fully devoted follower of Jesus while still holding on to some of my other traditions or practices or beliefs? There were those within the congregation that were undermining the power of the gospel message by teaching just that, that other rituals and experiences were acceptable or even necessary for the Colossians to engage in. So Paul and Timothy, they wrote to them in response to this emerging trend. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Colossian heresy, um, now, there's a lot of debate about what exactly was going on there and what the specifics were, but suffice it to say that there was a group of people in that church that were causing some trouble, and no, it wasn't the teenagers. Uh, these were people who were teaching something contrary uh, to the, the pure whole gospel. So, the big idea I'd like you to consider this morning is that Christ is everything. And you might say, whoa, Take it easy a little bit. That seems a bit extreme, don't you think? But that's exactly the sentiment that I think our text for today addresses. To follow Jesus is to throw your entire life at his feet. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. Um, we're going to be starting at verse 21, but I'm going to kind of catch us up to that point. So. Uh, the letter opens with an extended greeting uh, and a report of Paul and Timothy's prayer for the Colossian people, thanking God for the work of salvation that he's enacted and describing the transformation that's taken place in those who've entered into fellowship with him. And then in verses 15 to 20, there's, uh, they include what, what is most likely an early Christian hymn, uh, a profound poem describing Christ's glory and his position in, in the Godhead. And then in verse 21, the focus shifts to us human beings, those seriously weird guys and gals that have all sorts of wonderful and terrifying adventures in Scripture. In verse 21, Paul writes, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. The Colossians are reminded of their former status as alienated enemies before God. How would you like to receive a letter in the mail that called you an alienated enemy? 
Well, after this beautiful poetic hymn describing Christ's cosmic glory and his involvement in creation, this comment comes as a, a bit of a smack in the face. Remember your past. You used to be completely foreign and separated from God. And the language here is reminiscent of Old Testament terminology that is used to speak of relational breakdown. Now that's breakdown between fellow humans, but also between humans and God due to sin and, and misplaced devotion. This is whole person rebellion against God. The phrase, because of your evil behavior in the NIV is, is a bit more specific than the phrase, which literally means just in your evil works. What Paul is getting at is that before reconciliation, we humans were unholy opponents of a holy God. Now, this is not to say that God made us that way, sinful, that is, but that we became really, really distorted from the way that things were supposed to be in the first place. The big reversal comes in verse 22, though. But now, even though you were in that separated state, God in his mercy has made things right. The contrast between our former status and our new status in Christ is stark, and it's achieved through the identification of Jesus with our human condition. It was not because of sympathy for us that he went to the cross, but because of his incarnate act of complete solidarity with us in our human flesh. The cross is the foundation of Paul's argument here. But why, you might ask, why would this person who in verse 15 is described as the image of the invisible God or um, the beginning and firstborn from among the dead in verse 18, why would he attempt such a radical mission of rescue? What could possibly be its purpose? Paul tells the Colossians in verse 22 that it was to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Yes, the reason for this great reversal of status, this unprecedented act of reconciliation with the divine, was to set apart a new people for the God of the universe, a people whose lives would be colored and defined by covenant relationship with their Lord, meaning a deep connection that was a bond of faith. Three descriptors are used to describe these this new people. First, holy, meaning dedicated to God, set aside for God. Blameless, meaning to have no moral defect or blemish upon yourself. And irreproachable, which is actually a legal term that means to have no cause for accusation, as if you got into a courtroom and the prosecutor somehow threw up their hands and said, I don't know why we're here anymore. Each of these terms is rich in significance, referring to the unique purposes of God for those with whom he chooses to be in relationship. To be these things in his sight or before him is only possible through the chasm-bridging work of Christ's cross. There is no stairway to heaven, sorry Zeppelin fans. There is only the Son of God who stretches out his hands to embrace you and draw you close to the Father. Now this change for the Colossians would have been incredibly palpable. It's a reminder of what they've already come to know through the preaching of others. As a largely Gentile, meaning not, not Jewish congregation, 
They would know all too well the vast differences between the pagan culture at large in which they were immersed and the new way presented to them through Jesus regarding lifestyle and business conduct, social interactions, and family relationships. Paul wants them to remember these differences so that in the face of growing opposition, they would mature in their Christian faith. If you've ever been under the impression that being a Christ follower is just believing a certain set of abstract truths or attending church on a regular basis or adhering to some specific behavioral code, Colossians has a bit of a rebuke to hand out. Paul adds a condition regarding the purpose of this reconciliation. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This section of the letter ends with this urging to persevere. No matter what comes their way, Paul wants the Colossians to stick with their faith, which is founded solely on the gospel, on the hope given to them by that gospel. Now the gospel, what is this gospel, this good news? Well, it's the announcement that he has just made that alienation from God is no longer the status quo because he has done something about it through Jesus Christ. For Paul and for the Christian church, there can be no other gospel. There is no other solution to this problem of separation from God. As one writer puts it quite bluntly, how utterly stupid and wrong that the Colossian Christians or anyone today should imagine there is anything beyond Jesus Christ. Perseverance is completely impossible without the strength and support of Jesus. It would be like running a marathon without any water. Not that I've tried that, but I can imagine how difficult that would be. Paul also writes that this message was preached in or to all creation. And this comment seems confusing at first glance. Isn't the gospel really about us, that is, human beings? Isn't the good news that after we die, we get to go to this place in the sky called heaven and hang out with the angels on the clouds? Well, no, not at all, says Paul. To think that the work of Christ's reconciliation was intended just as this nice gesture towards us selfish people is to miss the point. The good news is that the whole of the created universe is affected by what has gone on here. God isn't just providing an economy fair ticket for individuals to get to heaven. He is restoring all of creation, which has become corrupt and distorted through sin and evil. The human alienation and hostility that he spoke of in verse 21 is merely a prototype of the wholesale brokenness of all things which God intends to heal. And this is the cause of Paul's intensity in his message. His servanthood to this gospel is absolute because he wants the Colossians and everyone, frankly, to realize the gravity of this faith that they're confessing. It means everything. Paul then transitions from speaking about high theological concepts and, and their incredible personal implications and gives an account to his readers of his own ministry. 
They had not met Paul in person at this point, but they'd evidently heard about him from others. It's safe to say that Paul had earned quite a reputation by this point. Uh, Not least of all, he had a criminal record. Uh, He was in jail at this particular moment writing to these Christians. He's just written his heart out, preached his heart out on paper uh, about to them about the supreme work of Christ in their lives, and now takes some time to explain the rationale for his devotion. In verse 24, he says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now this verse is perhaps the most controversial in the whole letter. How could Paul have the audacity to declare that his imprisonment and sufferings could ever compare to Christ's crucifixion? More than that, is he actually implying that Jesus' death was lacking in some way? It seems a bit blasphemous thing to say, especially in light of the high position he's given to Christ just above. Not so. Rather, Paul is revealing here a crucial part of his worldview one that has become absolutely central to the Christian understanding of the universe. A renowned scholar, F.F. Bruce, writes, Paul realized that by bearing the hardships on behalf of the people of Christ, he was entering into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. To suffer on behalf of the Colossians in Paul's mind was to align himself with the suffering of the Savior himself. There was nothing insufficient about Christ's torture and execution. Clearly, the previous section argues the opposite. Indeed, the word used for afflictions here is nowhere used to refer to the crucifixion itself. But Christ's death and resurrection inaugurated a new age in which the purposes of God for the world and for the church were beginning to be realized. Paul recognized as this new age emerged, part of the vocation of Christ's servants would be to endure suffering. He was willing and wanting to take on as as much of that as possible so as to encourage other believers, like the Colossians and others, to persevere as they waited for Christ's return. That was the central hope that this early church had, was that Jesus had promised he was coming back. And they thought this was going to be very soon, so they waited expectantly. His comment then is not only noble, but displays a concrete understanding of the call of God on his life. He was to bear witness to Christ no matter what the cost. He was to participate in God's mission, even if that meant being jailed or shunned or tortured or eventually sentenced to death. And next, he gets even more personal. He says, I have become its, that is the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. This mission is, Paul now points out, communal. His preaching of the gospel is not separate from his suffering, the two are intimately related to one another. He doesn't suffer just for his own sake, nor does he preach just to get his ideas out there. He does both for the benefit of others and for the 
because of the commission of God. The NIV translation to present to you the word of God in its fullness softens his words somewhat, namely that his commission was actually to fulfill the word of God. He defines this word of God as a mystery now revealed. His preaching is then an outflow of this revelation. Not only did Christ's reconciliation of humanity and creation have highbrow significance, it had very, very practical vocational significance. Followers of Jesus are marked by their own suffering and witness. And this theme is distinctly present in the development of Christian theology from the New Testament era into the centuries thereafter. This doesn't mean trivial things like being the butt end of a joke about Christians in your workplace or or not having your particular political views affirmed by the government. No, if we are to fully engage in this mission of restoring the world, we will likely actually suffer in very real and sometimes painful ways. But there's hope that supersedes all of it. To them, the saints, Paul writes, God has chosen to make them, make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Finally, he connects his own commitment to the gospel with a definition of that mystery now revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is no longer a mystery. All else in this letter thus far has been building up to this statement. The you here is plural, so it could also be rendered among you, but the point is not missed. The Messiah has been revealed, and not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles too. They who were once completely outside of the covenant of God are now invited and included within the community that he is building. Christ is in you too. Paul uses particular language here to make this point. God has revealed or made known himself through Christ. This is the work of something, rather someone, supernatural, becoming understandable and relatable to finite natural creatures. The hope derived from the gospel is nothing short of divine self-disclosure to human beings, and it changes everything. He He reiterates his commitment to this ministry, now fully informed by what he has written about this unbelievable truth. There's no wonder why Paul was so devoted to his mission. Now imagine for a moment that you are a Colossian Christian, sitting in a gathering with your fellow believers, much like this one, and hearing Paul's words read for the first time. They would um, get, receive these letters in local congregations and stand up and read the whole thing out loud. Now, we're not gonna do that this morning, don't worry. You've heard of Paul, he's quite famous by this point, remember. And you've also heard of his obsessive message about Jesus, Christ is everything to him. But you've also been hearing some other things in and around your church. 
people suggesting that maybe there's something other, some other things you should be focused on, and perhaps that exclusive commitment to Jesus isn't enough, or isn't, doesn't need to be that exclusive. Perhaps they're telling you to complete a certain ritual, or read a certain book, or listen to a certain preacher or philosopher with some sketchy ideas. But then you hear this passage. You hear of the radical reconciliation that God has enacted for you. You hear of the purpose behind that act to make you holy before God. You hear of the suffering of this man, Paul, on your behalf. Is it enough to challenge your uncertainty? Is it enough to make you remember why Jesus matters so much? We live in an incredibly distracting world. So many seemingly important things demand our attention on a day-to-day basis. Employment concerns, TV shows, social media, political controversies, the lives of celebrities, the list could go on and on and on. Some would say that all of these things are contributing factors to our culture's increasingly unchristian tendencies or, or to the decline of church involvement, and perhaps there's some validity to that perspective, but I think it actually misses the larger point. The Colossians, they had distractions too. They lived in a, a metropolitan city of diverse cultures and multiple religious movements and a booming economic trade. And you can bet there's a fair bit of politicking going on, too. Distractions are really only problematic relative to what we prioritize. They hadn't been distracted, per se, but they'd lost a sense of fervor and motivation to continue to grow in Christ. I know I've been there. Sometimes being a Christian is just hard or confusing or sometimes irritating or embarrassing. Sometimes it's easy to feel like the work of maturing in your faith, learning more, serving more, or going deeper with God is just not worth the time and effort. It can seem as though people who don't follow Jesus can and do have just as much happiness and adventure and excitement in their lives. But is that the point? Is following Christ supposed to make us happy? I think not. I think Paul identified something in today's passage that we would do well to remember. We've got to be in this with our everything. Christ's supremacy has as much to do with what he's trying to accomplish in our own lives as it does with his own status. That is, he is trying to cultivate complete and utter devotion to him. Nothing else will do. And when we realize that, when we grasp the gravity of what reconciliation with the God of the universe actually means, there's no going back. Paul wrote that he was rejoicing in his sufferings, not because of some weird enjoyment of them, but because he knew that in doing so, he was actively participating in the restoration of the world with Christ. Christ's work in the world is our work. And in order to get involved in that work, the starting point is to recognize his supremacy in all things, in all aspects of life. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you, we thank you for your word recorded in scripture and the glimpse that we've had this morning into Paul's interactions with this Colossian congregation. And God, as, as they were trying to muddle their way through the various voices, trying to bombard them from every side, we too identify with that distraction. God, may you cultivate in us pure and utter devotion to you, and may we focus and persevere in our commitment to you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as a community of believers and study your word and worship you. And God, as we go out from this place today, may you multiply the seeds planted by your word in our hearts for the glory of your kingdom and your mission here on earth, in our community, in our city, and in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.